And now, it's time for the biggest bonanza on Blaze Radio. Live from the Bill Austin Radio Studio, this is the College Basketball Bonanza. And here we go, it's a Sunday night, that makes it time for the College Basketball Bonanza. Coming at you live from downtown Phoenix in the Bill Austin Radio Studios, my name is Nicholas Hodel, Nick Keneally. It's a long time. It happens to be the most important Sunday. It's Championship Eve, Men's Championship Eve, I should say. And after a pretty riveting Final Four in Houston, it comes down to Monday night. UConn and San Diego State. How excited are you, my man? Oh, I am absolutely so excited. It's so sweet that it's finally here. It was a great season. Lots of ups and downs. Um, and it's been quite the amazing tournament. I mean, probably my favorite tournament that I've gotten to witness uh, in my life. So it's it, it's sad that it's only one more game, and then it's a it's a long off season upcoming. But you know, just gonna try to enjoy the game to the yeah, fullest. Yeah, long on bit, but busy off season is ahead of us, and you know, some other technical stuff has le- has leave left us with no choice but to give you a different vantage point for you watching on our video option on Spotify. Did a little bit of a different vantage point, but still the same great quality, of course that you're used to us. And let's talk about those semifinals. Uh, FAU and San Diego State, and, and and I think this tournament deserved one more thing. That was a buzzer beater. We got it in Houston, of course, in the biggest of stages from Lamont Butler. San Diego State, the grittiness of a defense that had disappeared for a period of time. Not used to seeing that whatsoever. And it comes on at the right time, stops FAU almost dead in its tracks, and Lamont Butler comes through. Only nine points, but had the two biggest ones at the end. Oh, absolutely. And when, when you say that it was an SDSU defense that was really surprising in the first half in the sense that they really didn't play to the kind of the standard that they've set for themselves throughout the season. They led up 40 first half points to FAU. That really isn't something that happens a whole lot um, for the Aztecs. Um, and the, the way that they were able to bounce back in the second half, they played a lot tougher defense. Um, and you know, that, that buzzer beater at the end by Lamont Butler, it, it looked like he'd almost didn't know what to do with himself. It looked like he was looking for the pass, looking for the pass and time was running down. So he just jumped up and floated up in the air, shot it and, you know, a miracle shot to send them to the national championship. That's chills. I mean, seeing videos, you know, they had the broadcast playing in the Padres stadium before a Padres that game. That was fantastic. Seeing the crowd reaction, the players reaction, just what a moment one of one of the best moments um one of the best sports moments i think we've had in the 2020s so far <laughs> yeah perfect timing too at petco park for the rocky starting lineup and everyone goes crazy <laughs> at petco park for a sport other than baseball that was wonderful to see in its own right you have to pour your heart out for fau's elijah martin had 26 points had almost no help in that second half. He was really the one with all the answers for the Owls. Uh, you know, for San Diego State, I look at it. Matt Bradley, he, uh, he was struggling big time in Louisville with 21 big ones in Houston on Saturday. If he does not come up, FAU probably runs away with it like they were going to SDSU stepped it up. I mean, he was playing really well, especially early. Jaden Ledee, there seems to always be someone on a championship team that you remember off the bench. Jaden Ledee might be that guy. A-Rope as well. Both of those guys combined for 21 of the 27 bench points. It was a 12-point differential for SDSU in that category over the Owls. 
And just a really good job from the Aztecs stepping up the defense when it absolutely mattered. And then you, you look at sort of the, all the different things that happened within that game. FAU had it tied with the lead until the buzzer beater in the second half. Absolutely. This just really emphasizes the grittiness out of this, this San Diego State team. We've mentioned it before. You've seen it with the way that they play. But usually it's a lot more prominent in the fact that they uh, they hold their opponents to uh, not the best scoring. FAU scored really well. I mean, surprisingly well. I mean, if you look at the previous opponents of San Diego State, they don't shoot they they you don't shoot 41% from the 3 against SDSU. You don't shoot 45% from the field against SDSU. That just doesn't happen. So major props, you know, a lot of that um came from that amazing amazing performance from Elijah Martin. Uh obviously 26 points, uh, uh three threes in that one. He was a major help, but I mean, he was getting some, you know, other great help. Nicholas Boyd, he had four threes for them. Um but it was just he couldn't carry the entire load of the offense. Yeah. Where other players were only putting up a couple buckets. They were more efficient buckets, but I mean, they just couldn't they couldn't get them up enough, which I mean, that's kind of a product of the San Diego State defense. That's what they kind of force you to do. Yeah, I mean fifty-four percent in the first half from FAU, forty points in the first half against the Aztecs. That rarely happens. I and mean, that was incredibly impressive stuff. There from the Owls in that first half, just could not sustain it uh, to beat the Aztecs. Had it and then lost it, and that's the way it goes within this tournament. Uh, real quickly, the UConn semifinal, 72-59, pretty much cruise control in the second half uh, from the Huskies. Uh, net, uh, had its lead cut down to single digits just once uh, in the first, in the second half, I should say. That in its own, by the way, is impressive for Miami, given the fact that UConn, Yes, they went on cruise control in the second half, like they typically do against non-conference opponents. But that typically doesn't happen. The fight that Miami showed from down 20 early in the second half to get it down to 8, I thought that was a really impressive sign. And then they never let that thing get more than get to more than 16 after that. I mean, that, I, I thought that was pretty impressive by Miami, but obviously didn't have quite the runs they needed to to ultimately take this one away. Uh, Dodavis Sinoco had 21. Jordan Hawkins off his sickness had 13. Some really good other performances here and there from players. Just your take real quick on the Huskies against Miami. Absolutely. I mean, they jumped out early. You know, tech, 10 seconds into the game, Jordan Hawkins hit a three, and then it was off to the races. Miami really didn't come close in scoring. Obviously, you know, from down 20, they really did make it a great fight. So major props to the Hurricanes. I mean, they really showed... Um, a lot of heart out there in the second half when a lot of teams could have just given up. They kept fighting. Obviously, you know, it couldn't uh, pay off, but that just shows how dominant UConn is. Just the way that they were able to jump off, jump out straight from the gates. Um, yeah, they just put their foot on the gas the entire way. Huge game from Sonoga, obviously. Um, he was a beast inside, as he usually does, 21 and 10. Um, and. He was the biggest difference maker, as he usually is, but uh, also major props to uh, Jordan Hawkins as well. 13 points. He said he, he was coming off a sickness, uh, knocked down a couple of threes, um, and it was just 
the dominance that you really start to see or keep seeing from UConn. Great offensive performance and on defense. They were able to limit Miami pretty well. I mean, tw they limited them to 24 points in the first half. That is insanely impressive. Yeah, it is. And, and I think one of the big keys for Miami, Wuga Poplar, nothing. Nothing on the score sheet in seven attempts. Had to take uh, Bensley Joseph and Harlan Beverly off the bench to kind of make up for it. But it still just was not going to get the job done nowhere near. They get a good performance from Wuga Poplar. Maybe we're talking about a whole different ball game here. Uh, but as it stands, UConn on cruise control to face San Diego State tomorrow night, Monday night, in the national championship. And we want to spend most of the time breaking this down on an individual level. Some of the matchups that we may see in Houston play out. And I want to start in the front court, perhaps the one that may be a huge difference maker. Dallas Hinogo against Nathan Mensa. You know, these are two very experienced forwards, very similar in height. They're built incredibly differently, though. Uh, Dallas Hinogo has excelled in this tournament. Nathan Mensa's kind of let the backcourt kind of do its thing a little bit more. Uh, the whole SDSU team is a very experienced, but, you know, Menace's numbers nowhere near what Sonogo has put up. Sonogo has put over 20 points per game up in this tournament with nearly 10 rebounds a game. A near double-double in this entire tournament for Adala Sonogo. If UConn wins this thing, he's, he's the favorite to win the most outstanding player award for this whole tournament, and he would deserve it by far and away. Over an assist per game, nearly a block and a half per game, nearly 70% from the field. Sonogo's really done it all. And he stopped a lot of good players in, in, inside. How does Mensa go about stopping him? I mean, it's really going to be tough for Mensa. Obviously, Conference Defensive Player of the Year. Um, he has He's done this throughout the year. He, he's great at uh, defending the post. Uh, he's kind of a lockdown down there. But has he really had a test like Sonogo? Not really. So this is really going to be a whole new ball game for him. And to come at the biggest stage um, in college basketball, it's going to be a huge test for him. But I have I have a little bit of faith in him that he can sort of limit uh, Sonogo towards under what he's been scoring in this tournament. Obviously, he's been having a great run, but I don't think there's a player in the world right now that can stop Adama Sonogo from getting what he needs to get done in the paint. I mean, you've mentioned the 70% shooting from the field. He's been beasting inside. Um, obviously, you know, the double-digit rebounding every game, you see it. That's not going to go away. But, I mean, Mensah, he, I wouldn't completely disregard him. I mean, there's a, there's a reason. He doesn't put up big offensive numbers, but he is a defensive presence. He is. And I think for Nathan Menza, one of the things he's done pretty well this tournament, block shots over two and a half per game in this tournament. I think you're going to see that become a big deal. If Dama Sonogo can get around Nathan Menza and make that a non-factor, Sonogo is probably going to have a 25-10 and 10 game and easily win the most outstanding player this tournament, probably unanimously. And I wouldn't be surprised if he did that, that that was the case. I mean, Sonogo has done such a good job, particularly in Houston, but also throughout the tournament, it's just dominating teams. Uh, like no one else has really been able to do. So that's going to be a very interesting point of emphasis, I think, to really take away from this. I mean, Sonogo even limited attempts. I shot 50% from three. Very limited attempts, but he made a couple in Houston uh, against Miami. I mean, that's a big deal there. I mean, they can get him flat three from there. Good night. Good night, Aztecs. I mean, seriously. I mean, that you, you won't be able to really stop that. I mean, I think for Nathan Menza, he's going to get a much bigger Sonogo build-wise and I think Mensa's going to have that big challenge. And Snogo, I mean, he can really do his thing defensively. He holds his own very well. So I think that's going to be a big challenge. I mean, that's probably like a 
three checkmark big advantage to UConn. That particular matchup right there. But that is certainly not the only big matchup that will be following the backcourt. What San Diego State really had to me is this really interesting dynamic of its backcourt being so, so good. Um, and it starts, I think, with Matt Bradley against Jordan Hawkins. I think these are probably the two better guards of these two teams. Bradley has shown it a lot more inconsistently this tournament than Jordan Hawkins has. But Bradley, the 21 points against FAU in the semifinal, 11.2 per game in this tournament to go with a little over four rebounds per game and two assists per game this tournament, has shot okay uh, from all of the areas, free throw line and from the field in particular. So Jordan Hawkins really has the advantage this tournament. Nearly 16.5 points per game, three boards and an assist per game for Hawkins. Nearly 42% from the field, 50% from deep, and over 90% from the free throw line. Bradley has a lot more experience in college than Jordan Hawkins. But really, it doesn't change the fact that Hawkins has been the better player over the course of the entire tournament. I mean, these are two extremely prolific scores. Um, and y you look at Matt Bradley's last performance, um, the 21 points against FAU, four threes for him. He's coming out here scorching right now. I mean, because he had an absolutely hot performance. But Hawkins is one of those players where he would be the team leader in scoring if he was on pretty much any other team in the country. I mean, obviously, Sonogo leads uh, UConn with 17 points per game, but Jordan Hawkins is right behind him with 16.2 points per game. He is an incredibly amazing scorer. I mean, you talk about the efficiency. Uh, he can get it done from inside, outside. Uh, he is He's a pure hooper. He's a pure bucket. Um, and, you know, that's one of the sort of things that it, you can throw good defense at that, but he's one of those players that just has a knack for getting to those spots. Um, and he's an amazing scorer. But Matt Bradley as well, he he does a lot of his work uh, beyond the arc, um, whereas I'd say Hawkins is more, more of that kind of combo idea. But two players that, you know, they can go for 20, 22 points in these big games like Bradley just did um, against FAU, uh, like Hawkins did against Gonzaga and Arkansas earlier this tournament, two players that are peaking at the right time and oh this could be an amazing offensive showdown between these combo guards yeah I, I think the key in this individual matchup is you have to have the Bradley that showed off on Saturday if you get the one that showed up in Louisville didn't quite play so well had to really get lifted by his teammates to get to the stage Jordan Hawkins is going to put up huge numbers mm -hmm. if this is the individual matchup I mean this is going to be we're talking 20 plus for Hawkins and if this happens UConn will cruise by at least 15 in the, in the whole game, at least. If you get Sonogo dominating and Hawkins dominating the individual matchups, I'm not sure what Trammell can do, what Butler can do in their individual matchups to stop it. I think that's the big key here. You know, you look at these two guys just in their Saturday performance, obviously a lot different team builds, so you have to take that into consideration, but Bradley dominated over, over Hawkins just by their Saturday performances. For the tournament, though? I think it's a kind of a one-checkmark UConn advantage, in my opinion. I think you get Hawkins as a smaller advantage throughout the tournament. Bradley's experience certainly shows up big here, but he's been inconsistent through the tournament. I think Hawkins, the way he's been able to just shoot incredibly well this tournament, that, for me, pays off big dividends as far as grading this individual matchup. 
it's really tough for me to try to give an advantage to either team in my eyes this matchup is a draw i mean two great offensive players you can't expect them of course to match up offensively and defensively i don't i don't think those are going to be the the matchups in terms of defense but i mean from a scoring capability i these it's two players that are extremely matched i i would have to chalk it up as a draw yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 a very tight kind of matchup, and and again, you know, different matches will come along. I mean, again, we're mm -hmm. just kind of giving some hypotheticals here. Um, some of them will probably end up being right. Some of them way wrong. <laughs> That's just that would just pee on me right there for I misguiding you. Uh, but I just think throughout this tournament, Hawkins has been the better, more consistent player. I mean, that that for me is where I kind of come from. Uh, but but if Hawkins does dominate this, you know, if this is an individual matchup that we see out there and Hawkins dominates, this will be the sign combined with Sonogo over Mensa that can lead this thing to being over in 20 minutes, leading the East Coast to bed early. You know, because again, 920 Eastern tip-off, we do not we do not condone that here, the Bonanza. We want that much earlier, but we'll take it on the West Coast here. We'll take a 620 start time out here in Phoenix. But I just think through this tournament, throughout the whole year, I think you're right. I think both these pairs have provided different ideas and different skill sets. I think that's the big thing we're looking at here. Two guys have different skill sets. But in this tournament, I give a slight advantage to Hawkins uh, over Bradley, if that is what we do end up seeing. Darian Trammell has been perhaps better uh, than Matt Bradley through this tournament. Same points per game total. Just under four rebounds per game, a little under an assist per game, but his shooting has been much better, except from the free throw line here, where he's a dismal 56%. He's a 38% shooter in this tournament and 36% from deep. Andre Jackson Jr., who we are pinning him up against, the freshman guard that has been a lights out distributor in this tournament, a little under seven and a half points per game, but that has not been where his main role has been for the Huskies this tournament. Six rebounds per game, seven assists per game, shooting over 51% and a 30% clip from three with no free throws in this tournament for the 6'4 freshman guard. We're talking about a really prolific score in Darian Trammell. Even from his days at Seattle, he has been very lights out in his scoring. He has been unbelievably good in that area. That has been his specialty. That's the one big thing that SDSU is looking for, and they picked him up. And lo and behold, he has brought that into this tournament by far and away. It has been really, really impressive uh, to watch play out. Andre Jackson, see him as a freshman, do the kind of things he's doing. It's been really fun to watch. You're talking about a player that knows his role. Know that his role is to get it to Shinogo, get it to Caravan, get it to Clemkin. We'll both talk about both of them later on this show. Two guys that know their role, different roles. They may not match up with each other on the court, depending on what Coach Hurley and what's SDSU's coach bring to the table. But this would be a very fun matchup to see play out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, I guess, our first real matchup that we're talking about. That's kind of polar opposite players. But, I mean, just touching on Jackson first, the way he's been able to really fill um, into his role in the system. You mentioned the distributing. He's a very solid rebounder at his 6'6 size. Um, he does so much, um, for, for UConn without even really having to score. I mean, you mentioned, uh, he's pretty efficient from the field. It does a lot of his work on the interior. Doesn't shoot a lot. 
Um, but he doesn't necessarily need to with all the, you know, the great scoring options on this team. Like, you know, you mentioned Sonogo, Hawkins, you know, Caravan. We'll, we'll touch on them later, but they can stretch out the floor. Jackson really doesn't need to provide that. And I think that's something that's uh, he can he really excels um, in this in this sort of um, role for them. And it, it's really it's way more different for uh, when you look at Darian Trammell, um, the matchup here. Because very, very undersized player. I mean, we're talking about a five foot ten guard. He's a senior. He's experienced. I mean, you talk about his time at Seattle, and he's always been, you know, a great scorer. Obviously, seeing a lot uh, less touches um, this year in in, uh, in comparison to his last year, but he has the this ability to score, this ability to get to the bucket. I mean, and it's really showed throughout this tournament. Um, he had that twenty one points. And that big upset win over Alabama, um, he had 13 earlier in this tournament against Furman, 12 against Creighton. I mean, he's come up huge when it matters. Not didn't score a lot during the regular season, but I mean, in the tournament, he stepped up huge, and it's meant a lot. And he doesn't even do a lot of his work from behind beyond the arc, which is something you expect more with a lot of these these more undersized guards. I mean, you saw it with Marquise Noel. Um, out of K-State. He did a lot of his work from beyond the, ar- uh, beyond the arc as an undersized guard. Tremel, not necessarily. I mean, he he does a lot of distributing, and he get he does a lot of getting open um, inside the mid-range, and that's that's where I really love his game. Yeah, I mean, I think Darian Trammell uh, in contest is going to be a really bad matchup for San Diego State, given his size, <laughs> no matter who he faces up against. If it's mm-hmm. a 6'4", Andre Jackson, if it's 6'5", Tristan Newton, if it's 6'5", Jordan Hawkins, mm-hmm. I mean, just his height alone is going to be a big problem for the Aztecs against a really good-sized backcourt within these UConn Huskies. But he's been able to make it work. But the only thing he needs to do is shoot the free throw well. I mean, now it's Southern San Diego State. And the funny thing is against FAU, one of the things we didn't even talk about, 13 of 22 from the free throw line, the Aztecs were. In that second half in particular, it didn't matter because they were just getting offensive rebounds left and right against the Aztecs. They will not have that advantage against UConn. Not against Adalas Sonoga, Not against Caravan. And not against Donovan Klingland. That You're not going to have that. I don't think they'll be able to find a way to do it. So you have to knock down your free throws. And that we were, again, not necessarily a matchup kind of deal where you're dealing with guy versus guy. Uh, but if, if your matchup is fouling you and sending you to the line and you're not making your free throws, you're giving your opponent a pretty big key to victory. And that is foul players not going to make the free throws. And I certainly think that could be a big problem for the Aztecs, really the whole team. I mean, it's not just him. I mean, Matt Bradley's made 79%, like I mentioned. Lamont Bottles will get to you in a minute, 75%. Nathan Menz is a 45% for this tournament. Uh, Keyshawn Johnson, 75% from this tournament. None of those numbers are ideal, by the way. None of them. None of them. None of them are above 80%, which to me is kind of like that cutoff of like, mm-hmm. okay, good, you're, you're fine. No, we're not talking about that here. And again, certainly they'd be some limited numbers, understand that, with a five-game sample size of this tournament, but that's still not good. That's still not good. And that's a big, big problem for me here uh, within this matchup. It is hard for me uh, to determine a winner of this particular matchup, Trammell versus Jackson Jr., um, but I think it's a small one to UConn because I think Jackson's size over Trammell is going to give him an opportunity 
to find Tanogo, find Klingon, find Caravan a lot easier. And that could be a major talking point if this is the match that we get on the floor in Houston. And honestly, no matter who Darian Trammell matches up against, no matter who it is, it could be against Newton, who has a little under six assists per game. It could be against Jordan Hawkins, who has been more of a scorer, and that could bring up its own problems in, in its own right. But you certainly have an opportunity here to have a, to find something. I think it could be a small one to UConn that could turn big over time if Jackson has a, a game that could end up being a 10-point, 10 10-assist 10 kind of double-double if he's able to find those bigger guys inside more consistently with a clear side advantage just because he's got six inches, seven inches over, over a tram, or over trammel, six inches in this case. Absolutely. I mean, especially the advantage that Jackson would get if he was able to work in the mid-range um, over Trammell um, in terms of, of a facilitating role. That opens up so much more. I mean, you talk about getting the ball to Sonogo. If you need to get the ball to Hawkins um, on the perimeter, this opens up so, so many more lanes than if he had a, a taller guard matched up on him. But no matter what the matchups are, he's going to be guarding someone, and that player is going to have a big, uh, a huge advantage in terms of uh, being able to facilitate. Yeah, and, and that, that to me is going to be a, uh, a pretty big deal uh, when it comes down to uh, deciding that mat matchup. I think that's, that, that's your big deal there. I do think both of these players will be able to do their own things pretty well. I think Darian Channel will be just fine scoring. I think Jackson will be just fine distributing. So I think we could see that end up being a draw over time. But I like Jackson's ability at distributing in this tournament just a bit more here. I think that could become far more influential once you consider the possibility for and ones of how well Sonogo is inside. And even Alex Caravan, he's been really good this tournament inside uh, from his position as kind of like the number two to four uh, contributor based on, on the given game. Let's go to, to uh, Lamont Butler versus Tristan Newton. This is, to me, again, both these guys have experience. Lamont Butler has been a very solid, all of these guys have been very solid overall. Uh, Butler's got 10 points per game in this tournament with 3.2 rebounds and 3.6 assists per game, shooting over 50% from the field and 36% from deep, 75% from the line. Tristan Newton, meanwhile, is even more overall of a, of a guard than Andre Jackson is. Seven and a half points a game, a little over it actually, with five boards and 5.8 assists per game. Shooting 33% from the field, that's a big sticking point in this matchup. The 40% from deep and 83% from the line in this tournament. Again, it's the hero for the Aztecs, whose name will go down in program lore forever, Lamont Butler, against a really experienced Tristan Newton kid who has been very strong in this tournament. He has been really good uh, in his own right. I had seven with five boards and eight assists against Miami with just three turnovers. Really good efficiency in an overall sense in this game. And that's kind of about what we're going to expect from guards like Newton. And we talked about Jackson distributing inside with an occasional ability to hit the shot from inside or from outside. I mean, that's kind of what Newton presents here. Yeah, you really mentioned how uh, overall on the floor he's an efficient player. I mean, that really isn't necessarily effect, uh, that his shooting percentages don't, don't match that. But when you look at, you know, the rebounding that he's able to provide you at, at his stature, I mean, you talk about the eight assists that he had against Miami. 
uh, against Arkansas. He had 6.6 rebounds, 7 assists. So he's a player that can give you all sorts of things on the floor. Um, you just really have to put the ball in his hands and trust him. Um, at, at points where you know it really doesn't seem like he, he he gets on these kind of cold stretches where he doesn't make a lot of buckets, but he makes things happen with the ball uh, in his hands. And uh, you go you talk about Lamont Butler. Um, that's another great you know sort of all around player, uh, nearly undersized in his own right. I guess if you compare him to UConn, because I mean UConn's backcourt is just so much uh larger than SDSU's but Butler that that's a player right there that um can get to his scoring spots um no matter what I mean you look at his 18 point performance against Creighton um that's a game where he shot 73% from the field you know that's that's not something you often see from a smaller guard but Butler is really efficient at getting to where he needs to get um and it, this is this is going to be a more interesting matchup because this is this is one that we could perhaps actually see this as maybe the offensive and defensive matchup, um, and I I don't know I I'd have to lean more towards Butler in this one, but it's it's still relatively close in my mind. This is this this one's tough, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm inclined to give this as a, a solid draw, based kind of alone on the on, on tournament performance. I mean, you have this. Butler kid who's done a little bit of everything, but Noon's been even better all around than Butler has. Butler scored a little bit more, has shot better from the field, which is the big sticking point here. And I think one where I think the one check more SDSU comes in. I think Butler's been a lot more efficient from the field, not so much in the free throw like compared to Newton or even from three, but his scoring ability, he'll be fine. It's only a three-inch disadvantage. He'll be fine within that. There won't be a big problem there. It's a really small advantage, like very like a minuscule kind of deal, but I think one that the Aztecs will kind of, I think they could be able to take care of things um, if that's the case. To Kashad Johnson versus Alex Caraban, Caraban's done everything that Johnson's done, almost just a bit better. Eight points per game for the redshirt freshman four with over five and a half boards a game and a little under one and a half assists per game. A small advantage in blocks per game. Both of them are under one per game. But Caravan has been 50% from the field, 37% from deep, 50% from the line. Do you think they're a little limited? But Caravan, when he goes inside, he he does it almost as smooth as Sadogo does. He has been very, very impressive. Josh has been very respectable in his own right. And SDSU make it where the front court's kind of taking a back step. He's got a little over six points per game, a little over four rebounds per game with an assist per game as well. 44% from the field and making a third of his three-point shot, though shooting 75% from the line in this tournament. I do look at this matchup as one that may not matter as much as Mensa versus Sonoga, in my mind. I think we're looking at this as a secondary front court matchup with Mensa and Sonoga being the big one. That spells trouble for SDSU. They got to put the stress on Caravan more than Sonoga, but it will not matter in my mind. I almost think it could wipe this matchup out because I don't know if it's going to matter as much as what Sonogo does and how SDSU limits him. But if Caravan rises up within that void, if there is one, oh boy, this could be get, this could get out of hand fast. I mean, all you're asking really if you're UConn out of uh, Alex Caravan is the bare minimum, is to perform how he has been consistently throughout this tournament. You don't need any special, you don't need a big performance out of him. He just needs to do what he's done 
you know, he scores pretty well inside because a lot of that attention is on Sonogo. He knocks down a couple threes per game. And that's really what he provides you. Not a big defensive presence, but you don't necessarily need one uh, paired next to Sonogo. Um, so the not a lot of stress necessarily of the offensive load is going to go on Carabin. And when you look at Kashad Johnson, he's that type of player where his performance on the court isn't necessarily a box score sort of performance. I mean, he's really one of the, he plays above the rim. He's an energizer for the players around him. Um, gets those opportunities open uh, for other players. I mean, his his backdoor cuts, I mean, seeing those live are, it, it energizes the whole building. So that's the more of the thing that he can bring to the team. And I guess a lot of his role in this game would be more dependent on, I guess, his help defense on Sonogo, more on how he can do the the little things within the game, um, not necessarily, you know, any big shooting um, or any, you know, major major scoring performances, but it's mostly how he can so- kind of sort of work at that front court as a collective. But, I mean, just what Caravan's been able to contribute to UConn so far this tournament and what I expect him to contribute to him this game, um, just purely based off that, I mean, I think it's a small advantage there. It's not huge, and overall, this is, you know, the secondary front court matchup. This one doesn't necessarily matter as much, but it's still important because if Caravan goes goes missing, then that puts a lot of that offensive performance or that, a lot of that offensive load on Sonogo where he's kind of benefited from taking a lot of that attention and being able to distribute to others. But, you know, if Caravan isn't able to contribute as much as a secondary front court member then that that could leave too much attention on Sonogo. Yeah, I think that's where you get the the big problem there. Um and and, and certainly an interesting spot uh, for this matchup. Not one that I think is going to be uh too crazy of a matchup as far as meaningfulness, but certainly one that's going to matter a uh, big time. Um I'm almost I'm almost want I almost want to wipe it out. Completely. Mm. I mean, that's, that's not fair. one I'm really mattering. I mean, I mean, I can call that a draw, not care much about it, especially if I'm, if I'm uh, Dan Hurley. Let Caravan do his thing against Johnson, but make it known that Sonogo's the primary guy, and Caravan's there if you need him. That, to me, is the biggest thing. you got to make sure you get Nathan Mensah equalized and make sure you're back when it's the same with SESU. Because, I mean, this could be a UConn 20-plus point blow if they do that, in my opinion. And that's what I'll be very interested in seeing how that plays out. The bench matchup I'm really interested in the most, um, Agawak Arope uh, against Donovan Klingon. This is one I'm actually really looking forward to seeing. I have loved Arope's performance in the last few weeks. He's a little under five and a half points per game, just under three rebounds per game in this tournament. And Donovan Klingon, someone I've loved this whole season pretty much. He's got over six points per game and a little under five and a half rebounds per game in this tournament with 70% shooting. All of that coming from inside. Neither of these guys have taken a three-point shot this tournament, which is very smart. You're talking about a freshman versus a very experienced senior. But for Klingon, it effectively hasn't mattered. He's able to use his 7'2 size and just do his thing. I mean, it has been very limited, to be fair. He only took three shots against Miami, made two of them. Had six rebounds. Had three of them on the offensive end. That's where it's going to be a big problem, I think, for the Aztecs. Klingland's height 
and his offensive rebounding ability, that's one I think is going to be very troublesome uh, for the Aztecs. They have got to find a way to neutralize him on the rebounding side of it. You know, he'll get his spot points, and I think A-Rope will as well. It might be A-Rope winning over Klingon within the scoring battle, but you've got to be prepared for Klingon on the glass. Oh, absolutely, and he really just contributes to the, the, the size advantage that UConn has here. Um, and you look through this tournament, you mentioned his scoring isn't by any means, um, doesn't jump off the paper to you, but you look at, you know, 12 minutes against Gonzaga, he had three blocks. 12 minutes against St. Saint, against Saint Mary's, he had 12 blocks. 13 minutes against Ione, he had two blocks. He can provide so much for you um, at with the 7'2 frame, um, in the post on defense, um, and you mentioned his ability to rebound on both ends of the ball. Um, you know, three offense, three defensive rebounds against Miami. He's going to be a very, very huge factor. And when you look at Arope, it's it's more of that kind of offensive load um, on the bench that they lean towards him more. Um, he doesn't really do much else. I mean, he'll come in and have a block in some games and a few rebounds but it's mostly he's coming in there he can score on the interior um with relative efficiency he's not going to stretch the floor for or anything you don't necessarily need him to that's not what they're expecting out of him they just need him to score on the inside and, and that's really something that he's been able to develop you know this is his fifth year of eligibility he's been doing this for a while now so he's really good at you know finding those holes in the defense um, and, you know, getting to those spots and getting those easy layups. Um, so if he's sort of matched up against Klingon, um, here, I, I, that's something that he could take advantage of as Klingon is, you know, he's a younger guy, he's a freshman. Um, but it's, I, I, I don't see necessarily any sort of advantage going on either side out of, the, out of like the sixth man battle here. Yeah, I think both of these guys provide their own different unique things that are that make it a matchup to where I don't think it's going to be much of a problem. I think the big thing, though, is that you have to make sure you're actually taking advantage of it. And that could be where things get very dicey in a hurry. And that might be a big problem. Uh, but I like both of those guys off the bench. I mean, I am that's definitely what I'm going to uh, definitely make that kind of wipe it out. Because at the end of the day, I see... A big advantage for Yuko and Sonogo over Mensa. It could turn into A-Rope and Mensa versus Sonogo, really. That could that could cause some problems if he's double-teamed. But at least Klingon or Caravan in a situation where they could throw as a, as a secondary front-court guy. That is something I'm going to be very interested in seeing play out. UConn wins both these matchups individually. As a team, this could, this could get ugly fast if SCSU's backcourt doesn't produce. This could get ugly real fast. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was real ugly, real fast. Because that's what UConn has done to non-conference opponents. They have utterly blown them out all year long. This is not just a March thing. You look back to Portland in, Mar in November, the way they beat Alabama. That was a, whoa, we got a problem on our hands with UConn. And they kind of took a back step in the Big East. But that conference has played real tough, especially the top end. And UConn, what they've done is... They have found their November form just in time, in March, and now through April. That's going to be a big thing. Personally, I think UConn dominates. And if they're able to do that, they are going to earn a title that I think could be a bit controversial as the ultimate opportunist in college basketball. They will become a blue blood with a fifth national championship in a quarter century. 
if they were to win tomorrow night, Monday night. And what they will, they will have been able to do is actually quite remarkable. You know, going back all the way to 1999, in that first national championship, the only one they have done it as a one seed, the only national championship they've won as a one. Their combined seeding, the, one, the teams they faced that year was a 45. Pretty typical for a one seed. We've seen some more tougher roads uh, and more recent champions. Kansas had a 49 combined uh, seeding of their opponents, and Virginia in 2019 had a 48. But Baylor in 21 had a 36. Phil Nunova in 2018 had a 37. UNC in 2017 at 34. So a lot easier of a row for UConn just in the seeding list then than several of the more recent champions in college basketball. You go to their second national championship as a two seed uh, in 2004. Uh, the combined seeding there was a 40. So still tougher than three of the more recent national champions. This year will be a 39 as a four seed. Still, combi combining it tougher than three one seats. Um, and 2011, it was also a 39 combined. 2014 was a 28, so probably the hardest from a seeding perspective. Uh, but then you take consider they face an eight seed in the national championship game. And what? And if they're able to pull it off Monday night, if they're able to win this national championship, there have been, since UConn won the title in 1999, and we're going to include 2023 because it is obvious that a one seed will not win. That was obvious from the from the Sweet 16 onward. There there have been seven national championships since UConn's first that have not been won by a number one seed. UConn will have won four of the seven if they win it Monday night. That is utterly ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And obviously, this year comes with a lot more parity in the sport as a whole. 2014 was just chaos when it got to North Texas. 2011 was one of the highest seeded Final Fours in history. And 2004 was still a pretty normal Final Four. With some ones, yeah, I think there's a three in there. I think it's going to be a two versus three, if I'm not mistaken, that 2004 Final. But this is ridiculous. This is a program that has done this like no other. And again, five titles in a quarter century makes you a blue blood in this sport because of the parity of programs that win national championships. And it's increasing. And it's only going to be increased more. And it's, it's a whole different narrative, especially if SDSU pulls this off Monday night. But if UConn wins this, to have four of their titles as 99 come not as a one, to have four of the seven since then come from them, Four of the seven that did not win by a one. That's incredible. That's utterly incredible, Nick. I mean, it happens once. Oh, wow, UConn got a bit lucky. It happens twice. Oh, that's that's kind of, It happens four. It would be four times now. It that it's as it's not. I don't know if it's luck at this point. I don't know if it's I, I don't even know what to describe it as besides what you called it as you know UConn is the perfect opportunist it's it's wild to me the way that they've been able to it the peaking at the right years could it be I it's it's throwing me for a loop the way that they're able to consistently do that it's it it, it boggles my mind it's almost by fate because I mean, it this, seems like I mean it. this is not a coach thing 
They did mm. this under Jim Calhoun. They did it under Kevin Ollie. And now under Dan Hurley. I mean, this is truly unbelievable. I mean, this really is. And 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 let and let's remind you that Kevin Ollie only lasted six years at UConn. Jim Calhoun was the guy. Mm-hmm. The guy. Dan Hurley's in his fifth season. He hasn't even he hasn't even been there more years than Kevin Ollie has. And he's about to lead UConn to a national championship. If if typical UConn is typical UConn. I mean, let's let's go through the whole thing. In nineteen ninety-nine, you know, that that year, the forty-five, there was they were a one. Again, they're only one they won as a one. I would say they faced a sixteen, then they faced a nine. Pretty standard step for a one. A five in the sweet sixteen. Okay, not something too out of the ordinary. A ten. Gonzaga, a ten. And then a four seed in the national semis before facing a number one seed in Duke. 2004 as a two seed, a 15 and a seven. Again, standard stuff. Nothing out of the ordinary there. A six seed in the Sweet 16, so they, got, they had to get a little bit fortunate there. An eight seed in the Elite Eight before again beating Duke as a one on the big stage and the big court. And then the championship number three seed at Georgia Tech. In 2011, they again got a little fortunate from the highest seed of Final Four. A 14, a six, a two, a five. So there's that, the five. Um, again, nothing crazy there. I mean, you have to remind yourself, you call us a three, so nothing too crazy there. A four in the final four, then an eight-seed butler in the most unwatchable championship of recent memory. And I'm sure you remember that. That was, ugh, yikes. Also in Houston, by the way. Also in Houston. <laughs> and then in 2014, pretty standard row for a seven-seed until they got to that eight-seed in Kentucky. But this is just something this program does. I mean, I mean, let's I mean, let's remind you of something here. This is also pretty big. This team has not been a one seed in the NCAA tournament since 2009. If they're able to win the title Monday night, three national championships since the last time they were a one seed. Does that not blow your mind? They've they've been graced in some sort of way. It's. It's hard it's it's hard to put it into words how ridiculous how how UConn can keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're not saying that they haven't had good teams. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, they have they, had some really good great, players. I great mean, squads. The Kemba Walker run Ooh. in 2011, Cardiac Ooh. Kemba. Oh yeah. Shabazz Step Napier back. in 2014, now you're doing with Adama Sanoga. I mean, all of these teams have had NBA caliber talent. So, so let's get the idea of lucky out because that's not the problem here. Mm-hmm. Or that's not the thing. This is not a lucky UConn program. They have found it at the right time. And in a year in which the parity has been out of control, it only makes sense that for UConn to win the title, they have gone through three five seeds. It only makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and, and, that, that, and the other part of that too, for Miami, now San Diego State, I mean, the St. Mary's team that was analytically gifted before UConn beat the ever-living life out of them. I, I kind of was on it when I said this has been one of, I thought this five line was one of the good, best five lines in years. For UConn, when the time they would have gone through three of them, which is unreal. And they would have had, and if they dominated San Diego State the way I think they're going to, they would have crushed all three of them, which is truly remarkable when you think about it. 
That is truly remarkable. And it just goes back to the form that they showed throughout the non-conference year. Blowed everyone out left, left and right. Ken Palm says they're number one by, over, by a little under two points in the efficiency margins. So this is nothing new uh, whatsoever. But it is truly remarkable how they have done this by not without being a one seed in nearly 15 years. That is the most remarkable bit, especially you compare this to the programs who usually win this, one seeds. It, this, will, this will break a streak of five tournaments where the one seed has won it. And UConn's the one. It's always got to be UConn. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you look at, can't necessarily call it luck because, yeah, you talk about those squads that they have. I mean, Kemba, obviously, everybody remembers that shot, the step back free throw line jumper during that tournament. I mean, and you look at Shabazz Napier, I mean, college basketball legend right there. And then seeing Sunogo amongst these names where it's like, you know, modern UConn legends, it's, it's pretty wild to see. And, you know, for good reason, because Sunogo is, he's legit. One of, you know, it was expected coming into the year for him to be, you know, one of the best players in the country. But a lot of players with that kind of expectation, a lot of them fall flat. And Sunogo, not only did he not fall flat, I think he rose above those kinds of expectations that were expected out of him. And, you know, stepping up so huge in the tournament, um... It's it's it seems it seems like they're destined for this. Yeah. Right? It seems like it's shaping up for a a amazing UConn run to be completed here against San Diego State. Now they can't get too ahead of themselves. I mean, this is a very scrappy San Diego State team that a lot of people have counted out a lot of times during this season. Um, but I mean UConn just so dominant. I mean, a great advantage playing in the Big East because, you know, having those great matchups against Marquette, Xavier, Providence throughout this year has really made them such a strong contender. But, I mean, year in and year out, seeing what they've been able to do, it's wild for the Huskies. But, I mean, they are that team. They are yeah. that program for a reason. I mean, you talk about this would be five titles in just under a quarter of a century. Definitely... This is that's that's this is blue blood that's you know a, yeah. t- blue blood territory. That's, yeah, that is a that's blue blood status. And one of the other things I'm just now finding out. I mean, obviously the one thing that I have known is that UConn has worked their way to be number one. They have worked their way into into what I think is the magical position of top ten in both adjusted offense and defensive efficiency. For me, that's the magic number. I don't think they were at that going into this tournament. They have worked their way into that. You look at that 2014 team, they were 39th in offensive efficiency when it was all said and done. They met the mark on defense. 2011, they were top 20 in both, but not top 10. Got to go back to that 04 team. The last title team to be top 10 in both areas. So, and the defensive part of it was truly gifted on that team. Truly gifted with Ben Gordon really headlining that team. <laughs> so, I mean, UConn has had stars. They've had great teams. But in this tournament, it is usually one season that win it, particularly recently. Now, that could change of how much parity has gone to this sport. But when that off year has come up, as with the one seed not winning at all, it has been UConn more often than not. More than half of the times than not since UConn's title in 99. That's remarkable. 
That is remarkable. I want to talk about the women's game kind of one of the rare times that we do, and obviously by no means purposeful. There's just so much on the men's side we have to talk about and only so much time that we have and obviously only so much knowledge that we both have of the women's game, even though I'm going to make that concerted effort to learn much more, especially with a girl like Caitlin Clark, who has been oh, yeah. utterly terrific in this tournament. But LSU proved to be so much better than the national championship earlier today. Hats off to them, 102 points in the title game. That is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, every player was pretty much efficient. I mean, it was crazy how efficient this team was, except for the third quarter. They were just so efficient. It was remarkable to see the efficiency. And obviously, the, the women's game has been going up like a skyrocket in recent years. They build stars better than the men's game does. The men's game has the one-and-done problem. Which, obviously, one and done, you can't do nothing about it. The NBA has shown no interest in doing anything about it, especially with the recent news in the new CBA. They have shown no willingness to do anything about it, even though the talks have come up, and now it's dead. Now it's just utterly dead. This national championship in the women's side was marred by some of the worst officiating in the sport this year. Some of the worst officiating. And for a sport that is trying to get to the point of the men's, where even just below it, grow just below it, you're going to get some really good numbers. ABC, you had five and a half million for the Iowa South Carolina Center, which was truly remarkable in its own right. This sport is growing, and it's only going to get better. But when you have some of these officials making some really bad calls, and I mean really bad calls, equitable to some of the stuff I've seen on the men's side of just awful officiating, that's not going to grow the sport. That's Absolutely not going to grow the sport. I mean, this was utterly ridiculous. I mean, I have to give credit to LSU and Coach Kim Mulkey. She has done something that is unmatched now. The first woman to win titles at multiple schools had a great run of Baylor through the 2010s, where when they did get to the Final Four, they usually won it. They had knocked on the door of the Final Four for so many years under, under her tenure at Baylor. A lot of the times it ended in the Elite Eight. When they got to the Final Four, they usually won it. LSU in just year two under her has done it. They have won it as a three seed. And say what you want about the parody of women's basketball, it's growing. It is growing. I think Annie was hoping that a lot, which is great for the sport to see so many of these upsets happen in the women's March Madness. Two onesies go down before the second weekend. That's the kind of thing that's going to spur the interest in this game. When you don't have the usual team, the usual suspects, but you have stars. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, mean both of these teams made their first national championship game. And for Iowa, they have the best player in the entire sport leading the ride. Yep. And, I mean, you're so used to seeing, you know, in previous years, it's always South Carolina. It's always UConn, Stanford always makes a run. To see it, two teams like Iowa and LSU, it was, it's just great for the sport. You talk about, you know, how much Caitlin Clark means um, for it as well. I mean, and you talk about the kind of one and one and done difference here. Clay, Caitlin Clark has been building this kind of name for the last couple years. I mean, you've been seeing more and more coverage of her. Um, with just the just amazing shots she puts up 
Um, and, you know, it's for a great reason. I mean, I think she's the biggest uh, women's college basketball star that we've seen since Sabrina Ionescu a couple years ago for Oregon. How about Paige Backers before she got injured? Oh, she was on the yes, case. She, she was, was on, on that track, she too. She was on great pace yeah, as well. She was on that track, too, Paige Backers. And I wish we had more time to discuss this because this is truly a conversation <laughs> worth having of just how much this women's game is growing. And it's growing fast. But again, a fish she is going to hold her back. Especially the casual person. They're going to see the kind of officiating. I mean, Kim Mulkey had so many points on the freaking floor. And the only thing you can do is push her back. I mean, it's like, really? You, I mean, it's like, come on. Like, and I thought that was a point of emphasis, but I guess not. I, I guess not. But, I mean, Angel Reese made herself into a star. Mm-hmm. LaDaisia Williams, star. Alexis Moore made herself into a star. Jasmine Carson. Star. So many stars were born for LSU today in Dallas. And that's great for the sport. When it can build stars, have the longevity of these players before they go off to the WNBA, and they become names in their own right. That is something the men's game cannot do because of the one and done. And the women's game has done it so well, time in and time out. Even when it was the Pat Summit era, naturally it's something to the UConn era. And what we thought was going to be a South Carolina era. Obviously not. And, I mean, just to, you know, say it real quickly, in the men's game, you don't really see that. But, you know, in the NFL, you kind of start to see these pictures where it's like, oh, you had all of these great players on one team. You know, you see it a lot with, you know, Alabama wide receiver core. This is kind of the thing that I expect us to see with this LSU women's team. We got to see all of these great players on the same squad the same year for an amazing championship run. That's unbelievable, really. Yeah, it is. We got about 30 seconds real quick. The men's title game. We've talked about it on SDSU and UConn. What's your final pick of the season? <sighs> UConn, 75, SDSU, 62. UConn, big. 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 <laughs> that's all I'm going to leave it at. And that's going to wrap it up. Next Sunday here, live will be our annual award show. So look out for that. We're really looking forward to bringing that content. And then we're returning to the after party next week, a special after party. Could be an hour long, from my estimation, our transfer portal rankings. Barring commitment or not, we're looking forward to that. We got to go. For Nick Canadley, I'm Nicholas Hodel. Have a very good rest of your week. For our live listeners on BlazerOnline.com, we one show moments queued up. I think Blake has done that for us. We'll catch you again next week here on Live from the Bill Watson Radio Studio. Have a very good week, everyone. Enjoy the title game tomorrow night.